Good morning. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our monthly Bright Focus Chats presented by the Bright Focus Foundation. My name is Guy Eakin. I'm a PhD in biology, and I'm also the Vice President of Scientific Affairs for Bright Focus. Today, we're going to talk about treatments for macular degeneration, and if you'd like to submit a question at any time during today's call, please simply press star 3 to submit your question to an operator. If for some reason you're disconnected from the call, there is a number that you have to call to get back in. So I'm going I'm to tell you that number right now. That's 877-229-8493. You'll then be asked to punch in an ID code, and that's 112435. Again, that's 877-229-8493 with an ID code of 112435. So our guest today is Dr. Albert O. Edwards of Portland, Oregon. He's an MD-PhD spe specializing in diseases of the retina. Dr. Alberts has had a, a remarkable scientific career, having been a prolific author of more than 70 research papers in, in this disease, as well as some 200 presentations on the topic. In addition to those research honors, he's been listed for many years as being among the best doctors in America and also in the Consumer Research Council's Guide to America's Top Ophthalmologists. In recent years, he's turned his clinical focus to or turned his turned his clinical focus to his patient population in Oregon, and he calls Oregon Retina his clinical home now. So, Dr. Edwards, thank you for joining us. I I think I have these things right, but if you don't mind, could you could you tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe a bit about the patients you're seeing? Yes, thank you, Guy, and thank you for the opportunity to participate in this chat. Yes, my practice is actually in Eugene, Oregon, um, which is to our south of Portland. So we're in the southern Willamette Valley. And, and I'm a retina and uveitis specialist. So I see patients with all manner of diseases that affect the back of the eye and that uh, cause inflammation or arthritis in the eye and uh, that have ocular tumors, uh, either benign or cancerous tumors. And as macular Degeneration is one of the most common um, age-related eye problems and one of the most common eye problems in general. I see uh, patients all day long with macular degeneration in, in all of its many forms. So I uh, spend a lot of time with this condition. So I think many of our callers are new to the fields of optometry and ophthalmology. And they might have a question about, you know, what does it mean to be a retinal specialist? And how, how do patients end up coming to you? You know, where, where, where have they been before they come to see a retinal specialist? Most of our patients are referred by other eye doctors. Those eye doctors may have received training in optometry, in which case um, they'll, they'll have a degree, in, in a, an OD degree. Typically the door will say, Dr you know, Jane Doe, for example. Um, there, we also have uh, general eye doctors and subspecialist eye doctors who are not retina specialists who are trained through medicine, so that would be either MD or DO degrees, and those, those doctors will typically be, doc, will be Jane Doe, comma, MD, or comma, DO, and that's how you can typically tell the difference. Um, both of the general eye doctors can uh, can provide, you know, excellent general eye care. Retina specialists are distinguished from 
other types of eye doctors by uh, special training, typically at least a two-year uh, fellowship or two years of additional training after completion of the general eye studies. And, and perhaps even more important is that in addition to that two years of training, we take care of only patients with um, retinal problems such as macular degeneration. On the one hand, you know, many patients in the public like to complain about the fragmentation of medicine and how, you know, they can't see one doctor anymore. But the upside to that is that when you have a doctor such as myself that sees the same disease in all of its many forms and manifestations and various presentations and complications, all the side effects of treatment, the problems that can happen with or without treatment, we have a very high level of understanding of of how to apply all of these complicated concepts to specific individual patients, not just to the anatomy of the disease, but also to the particular um, concerns or biases or problems that they've had in the past with, with various therapies in, in themselves or their family members or friends. So retina specialists are, are very unique um, when it comes to managing eye problems certain types of retinal eye problems, including macular degeneration. Well, well you brought up the, the specter of treatments, and that, that's certainly the theme for the day of this, uh, of this monthly chat. So we're going we're gonna to try something different. If, if you've been participating on us in prior chats, we've uh, had a more extended period of comment from the, uh, from the physician who's been involved. But today we're going to move directly into the questions and, questions and answers, because yeah, you know, really, that's uh, that. We've just been flooded with so many questions that uh, have come in about the subject of treatment. So, but I, I want to start with a question of our own, uh, Dr. Edwards. Could could you kick us off with a question from me? You know, so, do you have any advice that kind of serves as your gospel? Is is you know, that is to say that, regardless of the type of treatment, is there anything you find yourself telling every patient every day that's just good common sense about? how to take care of your eyes and deal with macular degeneration. Right. Well, I would say it depends on the patient's situation. So if we have a, a patient, for example, that has just found out that they've developed uh, wet macular degeneration, which is the growth of abnormal blood vessels uh, under the retina that can cause sudden vision loss, then then they have particular concerns that need to be addressed, and so we we try to help them um, understand the value of treatment. And, and in particular, though, we we try to have those those types of patients begin to become aware of their of their visual function and their visual needs, so that if if they get this wet condition in the other eye, they can pick it up earlier. If we have patients who are just discovering that they have the diagnosis of age-related macular degeneration and that it's still in the earlier stages, for example, just the buildup of deposits, we talk to those patients about you know, what they can do to reduce vision loss and how they can also become aware of changes in their vision that might be an indicator of the need for urgent care. Believe it or not, one of the biggest problems we have in preventing vision loss is getting patients to call us when they have a problem because the vision loss doesn't hurt. It's frequently one eye. Patients may not notice it, or even when they do notice it, they'll say they're busy and they won't bother to call for months, by which time there's often nothing we can do to help them. 
And then we have patients who have family members or patients who uh, are going in the terminal stages or last stages of the disease where they have severe vision loss, and those patients have different concerns. So, so it, really, it really depends on where patients are in the disease course. So uh, you, you're bringing up the, the disease course, and uh, we, we, of course, hear macular degeneration divided into two general types of wet macular degeneration and dry, and we have a number of questions that are coming in about both types of conditions. But let's, let's start with the wet and the, and the more general conversation of what does it mean to have wet macular degeneration, and what are the most common treatments for wet macular degeneration? Right. So wet macular degeneration is a... It's a um, general term that, that we use for patients to, to explain uh, their condition. It doesn't actually specify an underlying etiology. Um, it doesn't specify an, uh, a treatment. It, it specifies that, that there is the growth of abnormal blood vessels either in or under the retina, which is the neural tissue that collects light and sends it to the brain. Now, the most common cause of wet macular degeneration is abnormal blood vessel growth into the eye in patients who have age-related macular degeneration. But you can get wet macular degeneration from a number of diseases. For example, patients who are severely nearsighted, patients who have um, dilated blood vessel diseases, people who have many other conditions. So fundamentally, anything that damages the layers in the back of the retina and that central part of our retina that's responsible for detailed vision, which we call the spot or the macula. Macula is just spot in Latin. Anything that damages that tissue can be invaded by, by these abnormal blood vessels in a healing process that's gone awry. And in that situation, um, treatment is very important to prevent vision loss. And the the major change in treatment has has been um, just incredible. I mean, it, these, the drugs that we have now that we put inside the eye work so well that they're miracle drugs compared to what we had before 2005. So if you go back to 2005, less than a decade ago, most patients lost vision, and today most patients will maintain vision. Um, they may lose it over time from progression of the underlying disease or the dry macular degeneration, but but in the short term, um, the the difference is is dramatic. Did I answer like, your question, guys? Yeah, I I think so. But I, there's some follow-ons to that, and you know we we talk about these drugs that you put into a person's eye. And for, for many people who, who are being treated, they know that this is an injection into the eye. For people who, who, who may just be finding out about this disease, that may be something that's kind of scary. And so what, what would you tell a patient who's never had an eye injection? And uh, how does one prepare? You know, right. Is there anything that they might find surprising about how that's actually administered? Well, the first thing is, is to understand the value of the therapy. So you know, not all therapies have uh, the same efficacy. Uh, not all therapies have the same safety profile. So I, I think the first thing when we approach a scary medical procedure uh, is, is that we need to understand the value of it. Okay? And so in the case of treating uh, a patient with, say, new-onset wet macular degeneration with an injection of a medication into the eye, the value is huge. It's the difference between 
stability and an average of, of, of one or two lines of improvement on the eye chart on which the vision is tested versus a very high risk, over 50% risk, of progressing to legal blindness in that eye over a period of, of several months to a year or two. So I think first is, is the benefit of the treatment is, is very large. Okay? And I think that, that's helpful to understand why one would want to go under the one, one would want to have the procedure in the first place. As far as the injection, it is a very scary thing. I mean, none of us particularly like the idea of having a needle put in our eye. And, and this is even uh, difficult for people in the medical professions. I've had student doctors, for example, pass out when I uh, put needles or other, uh, poke other holes in the eye when they're in washing surgery. Oh, my. So, so it, is a, it is a very um, visceral um, uh, process for which many of us have, have a great deal of fear about that's inherent uh, in, in just who we are as people. And so I, I think that, that one thing is to, is to under, in addition to understanding the value of it, is to be aware of, of the steps of the procedure. And, and the first thing is that the eye is numbed up. And, and there are different ways to provide anesthesia to the eye, and that will differ somewhat by the doctor and also by the patient's need. We have patients who, who basically never feel the injection. We have other patients who say it's one of the worst things that's happened to them. And so in the first case, we put a few numbing drops on the eye, and the patient's fine and happy. In those other patients, we put a, a shot of medicine next to the eye to numb it up. We even have some patients in whom we'll prescribe a, a mild narcotic or an anxiolytic prior to the procedure if they have particular concerns, although most of those patients stop needing those oral medications after a couple of injections and the fear factor goes down. The, 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 the reality, though, is the needle isn't what bothers most patients after the first injection. I mean, most patients will say to my, uh, my staff, oh, the doctor was right. It wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. But what bothers most patients is the cleaning medicine that we put on the surface of the eye. So we use a brown medicine called betadine. And that is very important to be placed on the eye in order to reduce the chance of infection. The main complication from poking a hole in the eye with a tiny little needle is a one in a few thousand chance of getting an eye infection. And that risk is much higher if we don't sterilize the eye with a drop of betadine. Unfortunately, betadine burns. It's a, a very powerful sterilizing medication, and, and the eye burns afterward. And so we have, we have evolved a protocol over time in which we use a higher concentration of betadine in a, in a very defined area of the eye. We also use a wire lid holder to hold the eyelids apart so that patients cannot blink and spread the betadine all over the surface of the eye. And with this protocol, we've been able to dramatically reduce the discomfort after the procedure. But in spite of that, we still have patients that are very bothered by it and some who even have stopped having the treatments that bothers them so much. Yeah, so so there's a couple things there. I mean, when you say we, I, I think you're talking about an entire field you know, of, of retinal specialists and not simply your practice. Actually, I was but, talking well, about my office. Um, I'm oh, you're talking that. I was talking well, about myself and my staff. We have a, we have a protocol, a coordinated set of, of uh, guidelines and, and and adjustments that we follow from the first injection to the second to the third to try to tailor it to each individual patient depending on what their particular 
um, negative experiences are. Those may be well, from the needle, they may be from the burning, it may be just from the wire lid holder. So you've described a process that you described, first of all, as the first injection. So how how long do these injections go on? Uh, how frequent are they? And, you know, how the next question, I think, is going to be, how careful do we need to be about about you know, making sure that if there is a certain frequency that you're prescribing that we that we stick to that frequency? Well, I think the injections can go on until they're not needed. There's no limit to the number of injections that can be given in the eye. We use a very, very small needle. It, it's so small that it mostly separates the tissue rather than damaging it. Um, now, as far as I'm sorry, what was the second part of your question? Well, my my question was, uh, so the first question you just answered, which is how long do the injections go on? And that's that's until they're not needed. The second right. one is how frequently do you administer these? So you're, right. you're talking right. about a procedure that, you know, somebody's going to need to come in and maybe get someone to drive them into the office. So how what, what, what should be a patient's expectation about how frequently they might be receiving these medications? Well, the frequency of injections typically starts out at a monthly interval. I, I think there, there are a few places in the world where at least three injections at a monthly interval are not given. And I, I, think, I think not doing that is, is a little dangerous in, 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 the, in the typical patient with age-related macular degeneration because of the risk of bleeding um, from persistent growth of these blood vessels. And, and I should just say a disclaimer, and that is that is that there are, you know, many, many variations as to how we approach disease in particular patients. And so if your doctor recommends a different interval, you, you would just ask why not monthly. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It may mean that there's a specific circumstance. Um, and I, I think that as far as the, the schedule, the schedule can be very important for some patients. We have patients who who get ill, go in the hospital, and are two weeks late, and who will have a hemorrhage and permanently lose some vision. We have other patients who who will um, come in, you know, just sort of whenever they can remember, and they do fine. But I would say in general that if it was my eye, I would stick to a set schedule, and I would be very, very careful not to go beyond it without an evaluation to make sure that there's not a recurrence. That's, that's when patients lose vision is when they have recurrences and they and they bleed well we have a we we have a question that builds on that that comes from Judith in Ohio, and she's referring to well she's asking the question how long before eye drops for wet macular degeneration will be available but uh you know what what do we know about those 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 are down the line but but do you have any opinion about about that question? Well, I think it's very exciting. I mean, first, it would be nice um, for patients to not have to get an injection into their eye. Um, I think, you know, I don't, I don't have a crystal ball to, to look in to say, you know, how eye drops will be implemented. But if, if I were to look into my crystal ball and, and, and guess, I would say that they will probably end up being an adjunctive therapy to be used in addition to the injections, perhaps to extend the interval or perhaps to allow patients to get off of it. And the reason for that is that the, the back of the eye is, is compartmentally very far away from the surface of the eye. I mean, you, you, know, you, wouldn't, you, you know, you wouldn't, you know, put shampoo on your head 
okay, to treat your brain, right? And, and it's basically what we're talking about uh, putting a drop on the eye. I mean, it's a little different, but, but these drugs have to be specially formulated so when they hit the eye surface, which is designed to keep things out of the eye that touch the eye surface, they have to be formulated so that they can penetrate. First, they have to get past the tear film and not wash down the nose, and then, then they have to penetrate through the, the surface barriers and get into the front of the eye, and then they have to diffuse into the back of the eye in spite of a gradient in which fluid produced in the back of the eye percolates through to the front of the eye then drains out through the, the edge of the front of the eye. So well, there, there, are, there are a lot of barriers to getting drugs from the front to the back, but we know that it happens, and the question is whether you can get the dose high enough or not. That, that's really interesting. So you're described that you know all these wonderful things that our eye does for us, that that it uh, that its structure does, you know, preventing things from getting into the eye, and as well right. as the own structure of the eye, actually uh, actually are at odds with the type of engineering that we're trying to you know trying to pursue to you know to make uh, to make drugs easier to uh, to deliver. Right. But uh, you know, so and there are a lot of alternative ways to get things from the surface. I mean, there's you can electrically move substances into the eye. You can you can inj you could inject it under the skin on the surface of the eye, provided the safety toxicity. You had you had another question about from Judith's question about when eye drops would be available. And the answer is we don't know, but the drug that is closest to going into um, the last stage of clinical trials prior to approval by regulatory agencies such as the FDA is squalamine. Um, I think that it's phase two data, meaning it's sort of introductory safety, possibly some information about whether it works or not, is supposed to be released in July of this year. So I think that's the drug that is topical drop that's closest to, um, so we're, we're still talking years, uh, to the best of my knowledge. Well, we use some, uh, we use some kind of complicated language there when we use words like squalamine. I want want to remind our callers that if you call into our organization, we can send you a transcript of this uh as this of this call and any others. They're also available on our website. And I want to make the reminder that if you have a question that you'd like to submit to us, you can just dial star three at any time and that'll take you out of the call, take you to one of our operators who where you can ask the question and then they'll return you back into the uh into the call. We do have maybe some other questions that we could uh, that we could begin addressing. One is Carl from New Jersey asked about the differences between wet and dry macular degeneration. And I'm I, I'm not a doctor, but you know we we at Bright Focus have a lot of experience with this with this question. And what they what, what might be referred to as the dry macular degeneration is typically a a condition that occurs. You know, that occurs in a person you know, beginning in age 55 and above, where you might you might begin to see some wavy lines or some problems with your vision, like shifting of a shifting of patterns, uh, regular patterns. Like if you looked at a uh, if you looked at a uh, brick wall or the tile pattern in your bathroom. They might appear a little wavy, and what's going on there is that the the eye is uh, is responding to an accumulation of of problems over the course of a of a lifetime, and this is something that in some cases may advance to to a to a more advanced form of the disease, 
which we would describe as wet macular degeneration. And Dr. Alberts described that earlier earlier on as being the, the type of macular degeneration in which there's the growth of new blood vessels in the back of the eye underneath the retina. And these these blood vessels, as they as they break or hemorrhage, uh, tend to leak blood into the eye, and that gives it its name, wet macular degeneration. Our website, if you are someone who uses a computer, is the uh, has the top questions you can ask your doctor resource. And so this is we have a written version, an audio version, we even have video versions of of this, and many of the people who call into our organization find this helpful. If you don't use the web, if you don't use the internet, then there's other ways that you can get to us. You're welcome to call at 1-800-437-2423. Uh, again, that's 1-800-437-2423, or visit our website at brightfocus.org. So that's B-R-I-G-H-T. F O C U S dot O R G. So let me uh, look down the list of uh, some of the other uh, questions that we that we have. There's a lot of questions out there about dry macular degeneration on the market. I think what we're going to do is one of the main things that is available for dry macular degeneration right now is the are the ARIDS vitamin supplements, and that's A-R-E-D-S. And so that's a formulation of vitamins that are often prescribed for people with the dry form of the disease that uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't treat the dry form of the disease, but what it does do is lower the chances that the disease is going to progress into the wet form of the disease. And so what you'd be looking for if you were going, and these, these can be found you know, in most pharmacies, you'd be looking for, for vitamin supplements that have A-R-E-D-S on them. And we've had some questions about the different, um, uh, the different formulations, but, what you, but the main thing to look for is the one that has the most research around it is that ARIDS formulation. We've had a lot of other converse, conversations that I think we're going to we're going to have to work into another to another bright focus chat series. Thank you to everyone who joined the call and asked us questions. We'll be posting a recording and a large font transcript of our call on our website. That website again is brightfocus.org, and remember that is a .org, not a .com. But you can listen or download our past chats. Uh, off of iTunes. There's another service called SoundCloud. And as I said, you can find them on our website as well. Our next chat will be how to remain independent despite low vision. And that'll be held on Wednesday, May 28th at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. We'd encourage you to register and submit questions in advance. And we'll be sending you a reminder email for anyone who registered on today's call. We'll send you that email out here in the next couple weeks. So in fact, you can actually register for that May chat right now and also request free resources on macular degeneration like our Essential Facts brochure by calling Bright Focus at 1-800-437-2423 or by visiting our website at brightfocus.org. Again, that's 1-800-437-2423 or brightfocus.org. 
that the Bright Focus chats are held on a monthly basis. Uh, find out more about upcoming chats, just give us a call or check for our website for updates. Thank you everyone for your time and for the questions you've submitted. We'll do our best to get those addressed in the next call. If you'd like to leave us a comment after the call, just stay on the line. And thank you from all of us at Bright Focus Foundation. Have a great day.